right, today's scripture is 1 Timothy 4, 13 and 16. It says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to, and to teaching. Do not, do not neglect your gift, which, is, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Preserve them, or yeah, persevere them. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Hey, all right. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. So we're going with the yak. Is that what we're doing? Is that what we're calling it? Is that what we're... Okay, I woke up this morning, and the building had a new name. The Yak. The Youth and Counseling Center. Okay. Anyways. No, I like it. It'll work. It's like an animal, or it means to vomit, either way. Um, So, um, this is the NIV. I believe my brother just read it. It sounded like ESV, I think. That's good, because today we're talking about the Bible and translation, we're talking about, like, we've been doing Matthew for three years, in case, like, you're new here and you're, like, visiting. We've been doing Matthew for three years. We did Matthew, and we just finished it, and so we're taking the month of September to talk about different things. I did uh, Trinitarian theology for, like, two weeks, like, Christology, and then Trinitarian, just big, fancy words that end in ology. And, and this week, uh, we're talking about the Bible, because um, years and years ago, um, I went through a bit of a deconstruction phase, and things got very murky for me. Um, and I was reading a lot of things that basically were picking apart the scriptures and saying, you can't trust it because of this and this and this. And so in like sort of a state of agnosticism back then, I sort of went on this journey um, and I started um, corresponding with Bible scholars and reading and, and researching and trying to figure out, okay, how I, I need to build up my level of trust in this thing. So um, today we're doing some like, I guess, trust falls, <laughs> Biblical trust falls, if you will. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to open up the scriptures and we're going to look at sort of how we got here, how we got this book that you're holding in your hand or that you just turned on and flipped through like this. All the same, doesn't matter to me. Um, and how did we get it? Why are there, why are there so many versions? Um, how do we know that we can trust it and, and what do we do with it? So this week we're going to do that. Next week we're going to do a little more of that as far as like how to read it. What are we looking for when we read the text? And then in October... We're starting another book, the book of Acts. We're going to do that, and then we're going to go to Romans, and then probably go from there. I don't know. I haven't gotten that far yet. Um, that'll be, that's 10 years right there, okay? <laughs> I'm a long-term guy, planner. Okay. Um, my name is Tommy. I'm the pastor here. Let's pray, and then let's jump into, this te- into, uh, into, into sort of these ideas. It's not a specific text today. We're going to jump into these ideas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I pray that you would guide us this morning, that you would speak to us, show us some things we need to see. Um, um, Be present with us and speak into our ears uh, words of peace and mercy. Um, Help us to learn to follow and to trust you. Um, Help us to be a people who are soft and open and and open to hear um, how you want us to respond to hurt and pain in this world. Speak to us through your word. Speak to us through our ancient brothers and sisters who followed you. And uh, uh, strengthen us this morning. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, um, I'm probably going to say some things this morning you have never heard. That's fun. I enjoy doing that. Um, I, uh, it may, I don't, 
This is going to be a little more scholastic. I don't know if it's going to be a little boring here and there. Who knows? I'll try to keep it fun. I'll make fun faces when I'm saying boring things to try to keep you engaged. Okay? Now, um, first thing I want to talk about is the ancient church and their relationship to the text, to the Bible. Um, And and when when you're going to think about the ancient church and their relationship to the text, there's two things you want to think about. Um, Two things you're going to notice as you study sort of the ancient Christians, the first generations of Christians. Um, One of them is their devotion to public reading, and the other one uh, is their devotion to sort of this prolific attitude of writing, just constant writing. Um, I'm going to start with a guy named Justin Martyr. Um, And he was born in about the year 100, and he tells us that the first generation of of Christians, he writes that they gathered every single Sunday. I have a snippet here of, of one of his writings from the first apology. He says... Um, And on a day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together into one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, um, as long as time permits. (laughs) We kind of keep it pretty short. Um, And then, when the reader has ceased, the president, that would be the pastor or the head of the group, whatever, verbally instructs and exhorts uh, exhorts to the the imitation of these good things. Um, So, a few things. It's not far off from sort of what Christians still do. Um, today, uh, they seem to have met a lot longer um, than we do. But there's two things that it mentions here. Um, first thing I want to point out is that he was, if he was born in the year 100, he's probably gathering as a child um, with the first generation of Christians, people who are old enough to where they, they likely knew the apostles or maybe he even met one of the apostles or they were still around. These people who saw Jesus as children were still around walking around, worshiping in a church. They're pretty old, but they're still around. Um, and so this is the first generation, what they are doing. Um, and he mentions two books here that they would gather and that they would read. The first one was the, uh, the Memoirs of the Apostles. This, this is referring to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, I, he, he may not have been referring to John, uh, depending on when he wrote this and when John really got into circulation, because it was pretty late. And this, the second thing he says is that, that they read the writings of the prophets. This is the Hebrew Scriptures. This is the Old Testament. Um, at this point in time... They did not have the New Testament as we know it. They didn't have all these epistles and, and all the writings of Paul. Maybe a few of them were out there being circulated. By and large, the people didn't have them yet. It would take, it would take another probably 80 years or so um, for these things sort of really get into circulation. Um, but when they gathered, this is what they did. It's, they, they read the Bible out loud, and then it took a few minutes afterwards, and there was somebody who taught um, probably an older person, someone who had been around, um, who taught sort of the, the most he knew about the text, as much as he could, so that the people, and he would exhort them to sort of live it out, follow Christ in this way. This is how we should live as God's people. This is no different from what you see in the New Testament. You see in First Timothy, the passage we just read. Until I come, this is Paul writing to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Um, do these things. This is exactly what, what, um, what Justin Martyr is saying happened. So the public reading of the text has always been central. You see it in Acts 12. You see them also reading the Law and the Prophets. Um, it's always been central, and it goes all the way back to Exodus 24, where the Israelites would stand, and they would read the text out loud, and they would ponder it and think about it and pray over it. Um, what we're doing now is what, is what they have always done, um, probably not in this form, much smaller rooms, probably 20 people. There was about 150 Christians in the city of Rome when that book was written, and they were probably gathered in groups of 20. Um, and this is how it was. Um, but the tradition is sort of the same, the reading and the exhortation from, from the book, from the text. Um, another thing about the early church in the first century 
is that they wrote prolifically, constantly writing every day. The Christians would gather and they would write and write and write. We have found their texts everywhere in all different forms, um, all different passages of the New Testament. We have found them everywhere. And for such a small marginalized group. They were an oppressed Jewish people and they were marginalized people. So for, for such a small marginalized group, the sheer volume of their writing is staggering. How many texts that they left behind is, is, is really stunning. Um, Christians in the first three centuries wrote other gospels of Jesus, other acts of the apostles. Um, the bishops and the theologians wrote letters to the congregation that sort of mirrored Paul's letters. It's like sort of a pseudo-pseudographic kind of thing. Um, and there are practical texts concerning church order. There's books like the Didache, which is like a first century manual for how to do church. And we still have that. You can read that. You can get it on Amazon for like $3. Um, ancient text, $3 on Amazon. What a world. What a time to be alive. Okay. Um, there's these long defenses of the faith uh, written with these exegetical works. We have people like Ignatius, Antioch, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, what we just said, um, Tadian, uh, Irenaeus, Clements, Tertullian, Origen. All these ancient writings that we have. And imagine in in this ancient world, this is not what they did for a living. They didn't write for a living. They had to work and and live and make money and and harvest in fields. And then they would probably have five more hours in their day of daylight where they would sit and they would write and they would copy the texts and they would pass them around and they would copy more and they would pass them around. And you're like, hey, I'm looking for a copy of of Peter's letter. Okay, you go to this guy over here. And these things would be passed around. Um, And it's not just that. It's not just that they were prolific in writing. The lengths that they were writing were way different than what anyone else was doing at the time. Their letters were long, incredibly long. The Christians were known for having really two things about their writings. First off, they were very, very long writings. Like the book of Romans is a stunning length. Um, The book of Acts, that one was likely written on a scroll and, and came right to the end of the scroll. The amount of planning that must have taken to get, it's the entire thing. Like a full-length scroll. Um, And on top of that, they chose a weird medium to write on. Um, They chose, instead of the scroll, which everyone was using, the vast majority of of the letters of of the Christians were written on these codexes. Um, They're just sort of like modern books. They get really primitive too, just like slaps tied together. And other times they get leather bound. But these ancient codexes, they were were meant to be unique and different. Um, because the Christian text was meant to look different than what everyone else was reading. So while everyone preferred the scroll, the codex was what the Christians chose to write on because then you could like flip back and forth and have multiple pages open at once. You could take them apart and spread them out and read and compare stuff. It was a whole different way of handling literature. The Christians were very, very bookish, you could say, like very bookish. They were way into writing and interpreting and copying. Um, This is what they did. So when you open your Bible or you turn on your Bible or you just open that, when you, when you look at what you're reading there, you are holding the ancient texts that these ancient Christians were hoping you would hold. They were hoping upon hope that thousands of years from then, people would still be holding these books and reading them and scrolling through them and, 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 and understanding the things that they were talking about. These books, they're contained in your Bible. Um, Stuff like this is incredibly fascinating to me. Um, Let's go a little farther because this raises a lot of questions about what you are holding. Um, It's something um, like, it raises questions about why these books that we have because not all of the writings um, made it in. So how do we know what made it in? How do we know what didn't make it in? And when you ask this question, you, 
you tend to perk up the ears of the skeptics or people who have read works of a lot of skeptics because um, I've heard people say, well, you know, there was just a small gathering of rich, powerful men in who they, uh, they basically chose what went in and didn't go in, and they, um, it, was, it was a very sort of closed-off space, and so there's a few powerful people deciding what your Bible is going to be. None of that's true. Um, it was actually all very organic. We don't actually know how the canon was closed. And when I say canon, some of you are like, who's got a canon? Like, okay, a canon is sort of a word that basically means a library, a library of a fixed list, a list of books. Like I could write like uh, required books that you need to read to understand this topic. And I would write it and I'd be like, this is a closed list. Okay, this is a canon. And I want you to, okay, so a canon is a closed list of books. Um, sometimes people think like when I was a kid, I sort of thought of the Bible as sort of this magical thing that in a way that sort of like fell out of the sky one day and, and, and we found it and like it came just like this. Or sometimes I think I had this picture of like Paul sitting at a table like a zombie, like writing like this and the spirit is inspiring everything he's writing and he's just, and he, and he, and he looks at it, he's like, whoa, I'm just shocked at what I just wrote. This is, wow. Like that is not how it works. These are people having conversations. There's problems being solved and they're taking what they knew of Christ and they're writing these letters and they're sending them to each other. And some of them were so important that they were saved. But how did they end up in the canon? Um, we don't fully know how the whole process went. There was not some huge council that got together and said, not this book, this book, not this book. There was sort of, uh, it was a lot more organic than you might think. Um, we do know the canon closed the, the, the list of books that the church should have and, and preserve as one library. It was finalized somewhere in the mid-300s. Um, because we have writings like this guy, Athanasius. Um, on Easter morning in the year, I think, 367 here, um, he writes this letter to his church on Easter morning. And in this letter, from the mid-300s, um, he just happens to list all of the books of the Bible in this letter. Um, the letter is much longer than this. This is just two paragraphs in the middle. And as I read this list, like, they're all there, all 66 books of the canon, and there's no extras, and there's none missing. They're all there. So we know at at least 367 AD, there was a closed canon, that what Athanasius was reading and his church was reading is the same thing that you're reading. It's the same collection of books. There's nothing nefarious happening. Nobody later on is like this and this and this and pulling stuff out and putting stuff in. This was it. Um, only like a few years later, Augustine sort of lists the same list. Um, and, and lays it all. So we know that by this time, we're dealing with the Bible as we know it, and nothing has been added or removed since then, since this time. Um, and so the question is, why were these books chosen? Well, as you read through the scriptures, you begin to see that they place the most emphasis on the eyewitness accounts. This is where most of the emphasis was. Um, and if somebody was there and witnessed the work of Christ, met Jesus, heard Jesus talk, their writings were held above everyone else's because it was sort of this um, testimony to the things that they had seen. And as you move through the scriptures, you see the, the huge um, importance and the weight placed upon the eyewitness accounts. Uh, in Acts 10, I'm not going to list all these texts, I'm just going to sort of summarize them for you. In Acts 10, um, the, the apostles, uh, it lays out this claim to the apostles' Uh, to claim authoritatively that to speak and teach about Jesus because they have seen Jesus. They follow Jesus. And so when they speak about Jesus, everyone listens. They are his disciples. And you would go to the disciples if you want to know what the rabbi was like. 
This is how this works. Um, Paul regularly speaks of passing on what he received in 1 Corinthians 11, because Paul also learned from the first Christians as well. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. However, um, Paul learned all the things that he learned from um, people like Peter. Um, so, and, and also he speaks of holding on to the tradition passed down in 2 Thessalonians um, in chapter 2 and walking in the instructions that, that were received in 1 Thessalonians 4. So like there's these things that were passed down directly from the words of Christ to the apostles and these are the things that were the most important. There's all kinds of people doing philosophy and theology and at the same time and they're, they're trying to write out what this all means for all this and their works are important but they're not included in the canon because they were not eyewitnesses. So by and large, if you're an eyewitness, um, your book is going to be included. Um, <clears throat> he counseled his churches to avoid, avoid people who are not living according to the received teachings. Like there's little communities who are springing up who are claiming sort of like the Gnostics, like claiming the teachings of Jesus, but not living in the way that Jesus taught his people to live. And he says, stay away from them. You stay true to the teachings of the apostles and do their thing. And then Paul tells Timothy to continue in what he has learned um, in 2 Timothy 3, so that he can hold to the standard of good teaching and entrust it to reliable people. So he says, keep the standard high, what you learn from the apostles, write it down, teach it to other people, and keep this chain moving. Let's not add to, let's not take away, let's teach what we were taught from Jesus. So the whole point of all of this um, is that this is all initiated by Christ. This is different from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you're going to have like these prophets who are going to stand up and say, I, I received a word from God. And God spoke to me in a vision. And here's, here's what God says. There's none of that in the New Testament. You have the followers of Jesus who are saying, I received from Jesus this, and I'm passing this on to you. Um, this is different. And then sometimes you actually have um, these writings that we weren't sure who wrote them. And it kind of seemed like maybe Paul wrote them or Peter wrote them. So you have books like Hebrews. Um, and it sounds like Pauline theology, but the Greek is not the same. But it, it doesn't have a title. And so you're kind of like, who wrote this book? We don't, we don't know. I, I have my own ideas. I think it was Phoebe. I think that's why she didn't put her name on it. Um, Phoebe studied under Paul, and she was a known teacher that would take Paul's letters from, and take them to Rome and, and teach them, preach them to Rome while Paul was writing other letters to other people. Um, so she was well-educated, and she could have done this. She didn't put her name on it. But... What they would do is they would look at this book and we're like, it sounds like it was written by the apostles. The Greek's a little off. We're not really sure. We don't want to throw it away. And so then they would pull out the creeds and they would compare it to the first century creeds that were already written, some of them within five years of the resurrection of Christ. And they're reading these creeds and they would compare the theology and say, it's all good. Let's be a little gracious and include it. So you have books like Second Peter that may not have been written by Peter. We're not really sure, but it it looks like Peter, like Peter's theology is all there, uh, may have been a disciple of Peter. We're not really sure. Let's be gracious and let's include it, okay? So nobody's pulling a fast one. Nobody's trying to um, do anything nefarious. The ancient Christians were doing the best they could to preserve the words of Christ, anything initiated by Jesus. They wanted to include uh, in the canon. Um, why? Because, because Jesus is the word of God. Um, John lays this right out. Uh, Jesus is the word of God. And this is how the ancient Christians would speak. It is no longer centered upon necessarily the text. 
Jesus Christ is the word of God incarnate. He is, he is the final message. And so the text, the reason all these letters are important is because they tell us about the nature of Christ, about the way that Christ lived, and how we are to follow Christ and what this means. You can take all of Paul's letters um, and you can, you can try to write out all the theology of it, but all you really have to do, instead of trying to figure out Paul's, all of Paul's theology, is you could just go to the last book of Paul's theology, Philemon. It's not a theology book at all. It's a runaway slave who Paul sends back to find reconciliation and equality with his master. And what you're looking at when you read Philemon is an entire summary of all of Paul's theology, his lived theology on, on what it means to be a Christian. And you read the little one chapter, 24 verse book letter of Philemon. And you're like, well, there it is. Here's what it means for Paul to be a Christian. Here's what it looks like. These things are important and they're centered upon Christ, upon Jesus, the word of God. Now, um, so, how do we know then? Like, sure, the canon we have now is the canon they had then in the, in, in the mid-300s and probably earlier. There's some evidence that a lot of these books were exactly as they were earlier. How do we know now that what we're actually reading in the canon is the same words? I mean, hasn't it been changed by scribes or by, by priests and, and all kind, over the years? Hasn't it been altered for political reasons, this and that? Um, so, I get these questions a lot, <clears throat> Important questions, fascinating questions, and I think it's always good to ask any question that you have, especially in the church. The church is a safe place to ask questions. At least it should be, and I'd like to think ours is. Um, however, um, there are ways, I believe, that, that you can know that you can trust the New Testament. Uh, so the questions, how do we know that what they wrote is what we have? How do we know that it hasn't been changed or edited? Um, can I trust what I'm reading when I open the book of Romans, that what I'm reading in the book of Romans is exactly what Paul sent to the Romans? Um, that is an important question. And believe it or not, when you ask this question, you're asking a question about what's called textual criticism. And I don't mean criticism in a way that like we're criticizing the Bible. I mean textual criticism. We're, we're taking it all and we're trying to find the earliest possible copies of what we have. So I want to run you through this real fast. First off, textual criticism is really important. It's an attempt to get to the earliest possible letters that we have found. Um, we have found 30 to 40,000 various copies, manuscripts of the New Testament. 30 to 40,000 of them. Do you, know how many, do you know how many writings of Plato we have found? Six. Six ever. That's all we have of Plato. Okay. Um, we have 30 to 40,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, which means we can compare them and we can look at them and we can see the differences in them. And we can get back to the older and older and older ones. Um, and so, um, the vast majority of these manuscripts that we have are actually, um, if there's 30 to 40,000 of them, I'll be honest, the, the vast majority of the manuscripts that we have are not particularly reliable. Um, it was just regular practice that if you had a piece of scripture, if you could remember it, you would write it down, you would give it to somebody else, and they would copy and give it back to you. They would copy and write it and give it to somebody else. And stuff... Um, worked its way in, which shouldn't have been there. Um, so in a sense, a lot of the manuscripts that we have, the vast majority of them, aren't necessarily the most reliable because they're so far from the original copies. It's sort of like playing telephone. The farther you get from the original copies, the, the more different it'll get. However, um, the work, through the work of biblical scholars and biblical historians, we have been able to trace all of these manuscripts all back to about, here's terrible drawing, all back to about five categories, okay? I write like a three-year-old, right? Now, um, all back to about five categories, okay? And as you move this way, these are the older ones. And as you move this way, 
These are the later ones, the more um, sort of modern ones. The, um, we know that the, 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 the King James Version uses the Byzantine text. Um, and sort of there's, depending on what you're translating, you're going to sort of pick a different family. But we can trace, like if you find a manuscript in the desert, Biblical scholars and historians can take it and they can look at it and they can look at all the marks and the way it was written and they can trace it all the way back and say, I think this one is an Egyptian text. And then we know sort of how old it is and we can compare and say, oh, this one is, this one is not as old as this one that we have because you can see some additions here and we have this set here and they're all identical and they're the oldest. Um, and this is how it works. This is textual criticism. And through doing this, we can reliably sort of track the scriptures back through time, um, all the way back to sort of these professional scribes. So what we're looking for is not the ones that the average Christian in the church was writing and copying and giving out. What we're looking for is the top-notch, like professionally paid scribes that were hired by like kings and queens. I want a copy of the Christian text and I'm gonna hire somebody professionally to set up a team and make me a copy of it. And these are the ones that when we find them are the most important because they're the most accurate because they were professionals at what they did. And so without even realizing it, a lot of very wealthy and powerful people copied these texts, um, which are the records of an oppressed people who eventually took down the Roman government. I think the whole thing is fascinating and great. Now, um, so when you read your Bible, the whole point of me telling you all this is simple. When you read your Bible... You are holding in your hand millions and millions, possibly billions of hours of biblical scholarship. Every word that you read and that you look at, people have, have sat in rooms over the, pouring over texts, arguing about the specific word and whether or not it should be there and how we know it should be there. Um, again, I keep saying the same thing. No one is trying to pull a fast one. We are trying as best we can to get back to as early as a text and most accurate text that we possibly can. And every word in the New Testament that is there is there because the textual critics determined that it should be there, that this is a word that Paul wrote, that Peter wrote, that Matthew wrote, and it should be in this text. And you can trust that. You can trust the process. Um, and you may have never noticed, but... When we find things that shouldn't be there, as we do sometimes, we remove those things. I know people like to say, oh, Christianity never changes, it's always the same, it's, and, and they never rethink anything. It's, it's literally not true. Uh, biblical scholars and biblical archaeologists and biblical historians are using scientific processes and, and to, to study these ancient books to determine what is the most accurate, accurate representation of the text. Let me show you an example of what I'm talking about. So if you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, verse 27 through 29, um, you're going to read this. It's going to say, uh, verse 27, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. In verse 29, it's going to say, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. What you will notice is there is no verse 28. It is gone. It is not in your text. It's possible that it's been still included in the KJV, but by and large, it is gone. It used to be there, and it used sometime in your lifetime, it was probably pulled out. Um, in verse 28, it says, it, it used to say, and the scriptures was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. The transgressors. This verse is not in 
the vast majority of the ancient manuscripts that we have, it was added. It just magically showed up one day in the 6th century in the copies that we have in the Byzantine text. So you're flipping through and you're like, wait a minute, this verse is, I have an extra verse here. And that was what was used to number all the verses. And so now there's not even a number 28. They didn't go 27, parenthesis 20, just nothing. It's just gone. And you've probably passed over tons of these and you've just never noticed it. So what happened? How did this get here? Well, this verse actually belongs to Luke 22, 37. At some point, some scribe is copying the text and he gets up to go for a bathroom break or whatever and gets some pages turned and confused and he writes another verse or he's just really tired and he's writing from memory because this is what he's been doing for 25 years. And he's like, and he's just writing from memory and he makes a mistake, okay? And the critics find it and they compare it with thousands and thousands of manuscripts and they determine, nope, it shouldn't be there. That was a mistake. We can trace it to here is when it was inserted, maybe even by this guy. And then they pull it out. This verse is not alone. There's a lot of them that we have found that don't belong in the ancient texts. And I'm telling you this not so that you will think, well, I mean, it's, I mean, if they're pulling stuff out, I don't know if I can trust it. No, every time they pull one out, it becomes more reliable, more and more and more reliable. This work is being done to show you that we care about the text, that we want to find the absolute most pristine example of the writings of Paul, And so day in and day out, this work continues. And day in and day out, somebody will dig a hole and find a papyrus and and bring out the chart and all the scholars will line up and we'll try to figure out where this text fits and does it bring any new information. I mean, there's there's big passages. Uh, One of the the biggest one, I was talking about it with um, uh, a friend of mine earlier this morning, um, where a few years ago, everyone was really, really hopping mad that the NIV didn't include John 7, 53 through 8, 11. It's a huge passage of verses. It specifically is the story of uh, the woman caught in adultery where Jesus is writing on the ground. And he says, go and sin no more. And he says, let he who is innocent cast the first stone. That whole thing. And NIV decided we're not going to remove it. it. We know it's not in the earliest text. It doesn't belong. We're going to leave it there, though, because it means so much to people. But we're going to box it and footnote it and say, this passage, while important to a lot of people, isn't in the original text. Um, do what you want with that. Um, but like, this is, this is work that is being done. And I want, I want you to understand what the Bible is. Like, we're doing everything we can as Christians to find and preserve the words of Christ as they were, to pull out any imperfections, to pull out anything that was added to it, pull out any mistakes that were made, and to find them and to dig into them. I want you to know, nobody, again, nobody's pulling a fast one on you. The text that you hold in your hand is reliable. It is reliable. You can read it with confidence and know what you are reading is what the original Christians were reading. When you read the book of Mark, you're reading the actual words of Mark. Uh, Same with Paul and Luke and others. And we know a lot more than you might think. Um, and you are invited, even encouraged, to check the work. All the work is there in volumes, and you can read it. Here's why this one was pulled out, and the arguments are made. Um, all of the work is there. It's all visible. You can see it. Um, and, and I want you to actually like find this stuff out and take part in it, not to stand outside and be a skeptic from the outside. It's easy to stand outside and criticize because you saw some random YouTube video three years ago, and you're like, oh, see, the Bible's not true because this and this and this. We can show you that it is. It's going to take some work. Are you willing to do the work? We can. We can show you. You can read these things and you can learn this thing. Don't be a skeptic from the outside and criticize from afar. The records are detailed and the New Testament is reliable. It's a reliable account 
of the words of the apostles, no matter what version you are reading today, it is reliable, okay? Now, this brings up another question that I always get. What about the versions? What's, what's with all the different versions? I mean, one was read this morning that didn't align with this one. Like, what is it? Like, so in your, in your, in your seats, you're going to have these ESVs and in your hand, I'm always, I'm always preaching from the NIV. What is this? What is all this stuff? Um, so I want to talk a little bit about translations for a minute. Um, different translations, like translation is vitally important because what we're reading is dead languages. Greek, Aramaic, like biblical Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew, these are These are dead languages. Nobody speaks them, so they need to be interpreted. And the problem is language changes. It used to be like we needed a new translation every 30 years. Now it's actually picking up speed as language with the internet. Everyone's all connected. Language is progressing faster. So we're cranking out new translations, updated translations all the time to try to make it as easy to understand as possible. When you do this, you have to make a lot of decisions. Are we going to do a word-for-word translation? Or are we going to take like an idea and translate the idea? And this is where all these different translations come from. But it's not just that. Um, Translations are also tribal, okay? This is a huge thing I realized in the last few years. Translations are incredibly tribal. For instance, um, the KJV was a political move against the Geneva Bible from Puritan reformers. That may not mean anything to you. Just know this. There was an agenda behind the KJV and why it was translated the way it was. The ESV has an agenda, The ESV um, has been guided by um, big reform thinkers like John Piper and Al Mohler to be a complementarian text, to make women submissive to men. So when you read the ESV, anytime it speaks to a general audience and the original Greek says, brothers, I implore you, or whatever, um, that's meant in the original Greek to go to everyone, not just men. You would address men, but it was to everyone. And so while the NIV will say, brothers and sisters... The, the ESV will say just brothers. Um, it, it, and it specifically translates everything towards sort of subordinationism and what we talked about last week, the submission of women to men in the church, okay? This is what the ESV is, is, is for. That's what it does. Um, it, was, uh, it, was, it, was, it used to be the RSV, and it was sort of bought and commissioned to go in another direction, specifically than the NIV. So I want to talk about sort of a little bit about the tribalism in translation. This will be real quick. I'm just going to show you a list of typically who reads what. Like if you show me what version of the Bible you read, I could probably tell you how you were raised and like what denomination you grew up in. Because basically it looks like this. The ESV is by and for Reformed Calvinists, okay? Um, yes, I know our pew Bibles are ESV. They were a gift, okay? <laughs> If you have a bunch of money and you want to give us ESVs or something, I mean, NIVs, I'm in. Anyways, um, NRSV is for mainliners, you know, your, your Methodists and your Lutherans, right? Like, they're going to read this. Um, the CEB, oh, hold on, the NIV is typically white evangelical Christian, as opposed to down here, the TNIV, which is typically white evangelical uh, egalitarian Christian, Okay. Because there's a few little word changes that they're like, yeah, that's better. Thank you. That's for me. We've customized it specifically for me. Now, um, the CEB is also mainline, but it's an update to the NRSV. So like, like oh, I've got the, the, the new version of the mainline Bible. Now, um, African-Americans tend to use, and, and minority churches by, in, uh, by and large tend to use the KJV and the New King James because it has a higher Shakespearean English language. And it, it sounds, there's more of a reverence in their worship. And it seems to have a higher reverence and, and they hold it in higher regard. And so when a lot, oftentimes um, there's a sense that I can't read this, it doesn't, it doesn't sound holy, right? I back that, that's beautiful. Um, 
once in a while, I'll read through the, through the scripture in KJV and like, it's work, man. Okay. Um, <laughs> P.S. I have a postscript at the bottom. If you're a new Christian, if you're a new follower of Jesus, I would, I would say probably you should start out with a New Living Translation um, or what's called an NIRV, New International Revised Version. Um, they're just conversational. They're easy to, they're easy to read. Um, people knock the message a lot, but Eugene Peterson kind of, he kind of knew what he was doing, actually. Um, I'm not against the message. I don't think you should read the book of Romans from the message. Uh-uh. It doesn't work. Anyways, um, but the gospels from the message, I like them. Um, Ecclesiastes from the message, yes. Okay, anyways. Um, so, typically what you're reading is what you've been taught to read, um, and, and I want, again, I want you to hear all of this because I want to fight back against the increasingly skeptical generation of young Christians um, because of what they have seen in evangelicalism. Um, and they see evangelicals sort of go astray and follow things that they ought not to follow. And they assume, oh, it's because of the text. The, the Bible is no good. It's not. The, the, the people interpreting it oftentimes are wrong. Um, and so I want to empower you, okay? And this is sort of the part where I want to bring it together because Sam this morning mentioned this practice of Lectio Divina, Gathering and reading the text and just reading the text and pondering it. This is exactly what the original Christians did. This is what Christians said. This is what the ancient Israelites did. And so there's a few things I want you to be empowered to do. Okay, here's the motivational part of the, of the sermon. I don't usually do topical sermons. So I have to have, feel like I have to, I should put on a leather jacket and fancy shoes. Anyways, um, okay. Um, I want, I, first off, I want you to be empowered to, to trust your Bible. You can trust it. I don't want you to sit around and just look at it and be skeptical and you read something and I don't feel like that should be in there. I don't even know how to interpret. Like, I, I want you to trust it. No matter what translation you're using, if you're using KGV, ESV, whatever, like, it's reliable. By and large, it's reliable. Um, I want to entrust, I, I want to empower you to, to, to simply, okay, receive it and trust it. Like, put those fears aside. Um, even as a spiritual discipline. Just put those fears aside for a bit. Next, um, I want you to be empowered to read your Bible. Um, I typically tell people three pages a day will typically get you through it in a year. Um, and I don't, think you should meet, I don't think you should jump around different texts. I think you should read it the way they did, the way the first Christians did. I think you should start in Genesis and I think you should work your way through. You're gonna get the whole, sto- you're gonna get the whole story of Israel all the way through and how God intervenes and opens Israel up to make all people his people. Um, a church of, of not just Jews, but Gentiles, all of us gathered together, a part of this blessing of God and this covenant. Like, you should see the whole thing from the beginning. Just read it cover to cover. Um, and I also want to encourage you not just to read it by yourself. Early Christians did not read the Bible by themselves. They read it collectively. It was never something that was intended to be just like headphones on, blasting some atmospheric music, just, just trying to feel, right? It was always in a room, people all around you, and you're pronouncing it, and you're acting it out, and you're pointing at people, and you're getting forceful, and you're, you're reading it, like you're really reading it. Um, so I want to empower you to read your Bible communally with people. Practice this at your house churches. Do this in Lectio Divina on a Sunday morning starting October 13th at the Yak, apparently. Um, and I, 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 I want to empower you to read your Bible communally with people who love the Bible. Because here's the thing. The people you read the Bible with, you will begin to read the Bible like, okay? If you read the Bible long enough with somebody, you will read it like they do. So if you spend time reading with skeptics, 
you will become very, very skeptical of the Bible. Not that you shouldn't once in a while open up and read with some skeptics. It's a nice exercise in seeing through the eyes of other people. Um, By and large, when we read the Bible together, we will begin to read it similarly, like in the same. It's happening here. Like I see it. Someone, someone was reading a text, and I heard someone, someone relayed a conversation to me about, about the text, and they were like, yeah, but what did that mean in the first century? And I was like, yes, you're reading it like me. That's how I read the text. What does it mean to them? I think one of the most dangerous questions you could ever ask, honestly, like for all the times I've been accused of, of being a quote-unquote liberal, I, I can't think of a more liberal question than what does this text mean to you? It doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what it meant to the original readers. Find their meaning and ponder that and ask yourself, am I in this same situation? And live this out, okay? Let's be true to the text, okay? Let's, let's not, anyways, off my soapbox. Read it with people who love the Bible. We've just spent three years studying the book of Matthew and you know what? Now I'm beginning to see the world, not beginning, like I do now, see the world through the eyes of Matthew. I, I see... I see presidents on TV and, and, and prime ministers and kings and Abdullahs, and I, and I look at them and I think, well, they're just parodies and, and caricatures of, of the true king who is Jesus. And they're trying so hard to fulfill this role. They were never intended to roll. That's why they all stick at it. Like, this is not what you're, and I'm beginning to see it as Matthew does. They're like, yeah, no, no, no king but Jesus. No, no nation but the kingdom of God. No kingdom but the kingdom of God. Like, I'm beginning to see how Christians desire, when, when Jesus and Barabbas are standing together, Christians are always typically like, yeah, just give us Barabbas. I don't, I don't want none of this like lovey-dovey, pour myself out for other people thing. I want somebody who's strong and is gonna, who's gonna take charge and, and kill some people. Like this is, I'm beginning to see the world through the eyes of Matthew. When you spend time reading the text with people, even biblical characters, this is what happens. You're putting on their lens and you're looking at the world through their eyes. What does it mean to follow Jesus here in this place, in this text? The whole point of Christians gathering and preserving the Bible and reading the Bible was not so that they can just read it and do what it says. It was so that they could read it. Um, it was so that they could read it and understand what Jesus was doing and what this meant for the early Christians. And then as you follow Christ, your life should align to theirs. You should become more generous, more merciful, more gracious. You should be pouring yourself out more and more for people. This is why we read the text. And I encourage you, read the text with people who trust the text and who love the text and who really care about what is happening in it, not who are just trying to change it and shift it um, to be just like everything else because they intended it to be unique, the way that they wrote it, the way that they packaged it, the way... The way that they lived, their lives centered around being a unique people with a unique message, okay? Um, I don't have any big emotional plea. Like, this is it. This is what I got for you today. Um, I want you to gather and I want you to read your text. I want you to read it regularly. I want you to try and understand it. Read commentaries. Email me and the elders if you have questions about what else should I be reading alongside this. But for now, let's take communion. I want our communion servers to go and take the elements. And now uh, do we have a, yeah, we got some. I think, unless they're leaving. No, they're, they're getting communion. <laughs> cool. Um, and we're going we're gonna to take communion together, and, uh, and we're going to spend some time in prayer and silence. Um, and whenever you are finished, meet some people around you. See if there's somebody else who needs prayer. See if there's somebody who needs some guidance, who needs a shoulder to cry on, someone to hug, someone to pray with. 
um, someone to just listen to them as they pour themselves out. Um, this is one of the ways that we mirror Jesus. We take communion um, as, a, as an exercise in the body of Christ being broken and poured out for us, for our salvation and our healing, and we do this for each other. So as our communion servers come forward, let's spend some time in prayer, and then whenever you're finished, um, you're free to go whenever you'd like, whenever you're finished. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Continue to grow us stronger and stronger. Make us a a people who love you, who love your word, who love Jesus. Um, A people who who take great care in the text. Um, A people who are becoming more and more knowledgeable of it all the time. A people who trust it and trust you. Thank you for those who worked to preserve what we have. Let us take part in that as well. In your name, amen. Grace and peace. Take some time and talk to Jesus.